If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. The funny thing is that Asimov, for example, he thought that psychologists uh, would have the biggest profession of the future because they would have to treat all the people who are bored. That was Rutger Bregman discussing his new book, Utopia for Realists. Suddenly there was a strange noise and these buccaneer bombers flew very low and they were on their way to bomb the ship and I could actually hear the bombs going off. They bombed it with thousand pounders. And that was Julian May recalling the Torrey Canyon disaster of 1967. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of March 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week we begin with an interview with Rutger Bregman, a Dutch writer and philosopher whose new book, Utopia for Realists, draws lessons from history to consider how we can improve our own society. He spoke to our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman. Um, okay, so probably the, the best place to start is for you perhaps to, to outline to, to listeners what your vision of, of Utopia for Realists is. So my book is about a few ideas that may seem crazy at first, 
but may become reality in the future. So my book is about how do we make utopia real? Um, there are many examples in history of the past two, 300 years, like the end of slavery or equal rights for men and women or democracy that once seemed ludicrous, crazy, bizarre, but now are just milestones of civilization. And the idea of my book is that we can do that again. Uh, and that the problem of today is not so much that we don't have it good, but that we lack new utopian visions for the 21st century. So, uh, yeah, that's what the book is about. Okay. And briefly, what, what are the themes that you look at in the book? What are your ideas for, for a utopian society? Yeah, there are three main utopian ideas. So the first one is the idea of a universal basic income, which is an unconditional sort of wage for everyone, which would completely eradicate poverty. It's actually quite an old idea. It goes back to, I think, about the end of the 18th century, Thomas Paine, the famous American free thinkers. The free thinker already proposed it. Uh, so that's one of the ideas. Another idea is that of a 15-hour work week. It's also an old idea. It goes back to John Maynard Keynes already writing about it in the 1930s. And the third and last idea is probably the craziest idea of my book, which is to open all borders and um, have every, have the freedom for everyone to go wherever they want, work wherever they want. Okay, so we're, we're sort of take, taking sort of one of those ideas at a time. The universal basic income that you mentioned in your book that that was something that Richard Nixon uh, tried to implement. Um, I think it was in 1968, wasn't yeah. it? And that that would have guaranteed a family of four sixteen hundred dollars a year, if I'm right. Um, so. What was his thinking behind this, and, and why did that idea never take off? Well, it's a completely forgotten episode of American history, and it's also quite fascinating. Um, you should know that at the end of the 60s, almost everyone, you know, all the experts, all the economists, historians, sociologists, everyone believed that some form of basic income was going to be implemented. People from the left to the right believe that. And indeed, it was Nixon who made the proposal, who, which went to Congress twice uh, and was only voted down in the Senate because the Democrats thought that uh, they should have a, a higher basic income. So they thought that Nixon's proposal was too low. Um, it's, it's a completely forgotten episode. After that, we got Reagan and Thatcher, obviously, and all these ideas were forgotten. Um, but back then, everyone believed that some form was going to be implemented. I mean, but today, what do you think is the biggest obstacle? Because in some places in the Netherlands, I think it's going to be introduced, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that for me, history offers two two big lessons. So the first lesson, and that's why I start off in, in the first chapter of my book, is that things used to be much worse. Uh, and that's something we often forget. Um, we are richer, healthier, and smarter than we ever were. And uh, especially in the past 200 years, we've seen tremendous progress. So when people are, are pessimistic about the future, I like to remind them that we have accomplished a lot already. So that's the first lesson. The other lesson is that things can be different. There's nothing natural about the way we've organized our society right now, about the way we've organized our economy, about the way we've organized our systems of social security. It can all be different. Um, and I think that's that's a very... Uh, I mean, you see it happening right now with Brexit and with, with Donald Trump, is that many things we took for granted, you know, <laughs> they can all suddenly disappear. Uh, but, it, but it can work in the other direction as well. And that's what's been happening with basic income, is that just 
three or four years ago, no one knew what I was talking about. The idea was just in the fringes of, of the debate everywhere. And nowadays, there are experiments starting in Canada. Finland has already begun. Uh, there's been a referendum in Switzerland. About 20 cities in the Netherlands want to do some kind of experiment. So... Um, I think that's that's how change always happens. It doesn't start in the center, but it starts in the periphery and then moves towards the center. That's something that, that history really teaches us. Mm. I mean, other than um, Nixon in the 60s, has um, uh, basic income, has it been tried before anywhere? And, you know, if so, what, what were the results? Yeah. So there's one fascinating story of a city in Canada that did an experiment in the 70s. Uh, and this this started out in 1974, and it, it lasted for four years. Uh, it was a city called Dolphin. About a thousand families received a basic income there, so ensuring that no one in the whole town fell below the poverty line. So the town was called the city without poverty. Um, and what happened is that for all for four years, all went well, and researchers collected a lot of data. But then a new conservative government was voted into power, and they saw a little point to the expensive experiment. So they said, well, uh, stop this. And there was no money left for an analysis of the results. And then only 30 years later, a Canadian professor, Evelyn Forget at the University of Manitoba, she heard about the records, she found them, she did them off, she, you know, she did the research for about three years, and she discovered that the experiment had been a huge success. Um, so people in Dolphin did not only become richer, but also smarter and healthier. The hospital admissions decreased by as much as 8.5%. Kids performed better at school. Crime was down. Mental health problems were down. Domestic violence was down. You know, all kinds of benefits um, were, were discovered. So, uh, yeah, the, the, if you look at the history of basic income... It's full of these tragical ironies. <laughs> Actually, the same thing happened in the U.S. is that they did a lot of experiments there as well with the same results. Um, so kids before better at school, less crime, people didn't stop working, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there was one fatal discovery in one of the U.S. experiments. They found out that in the Seattle experiment, the divorce rate had increased by as much as fifty percent. Really? Yeah. So at that point, you know, all the uh, um, the conservative politician said, you know, we, we can't have this, you know, basic income will make women much too independent, you know. Um, so they were against basic income. It was only 10 years later that the researchers found out that they had made a statistical mistake. So in reality, the divorce rate hadn't risen at all. Um, and history is full of that kind of irony sometimes. So sometimes we think that all these things are really determined by big causes and grand events, etc. But I, studying the history of basic income, you really get the feeling that it could so easily have, you know, happened uh, in another way. Or, yeah, that history could have t uh, taken a very different course. Mm. I mean, one of the, one of the kind of um, objections to, to basic income that you mentioned is that people sort of worry that people will start getting lazy if they're just given mm -hmm. money. Um, do you think that would happen? Was there any evidence of that in those studies? Well, I mean, you could argue for hours and hours on, on this. What, I, what, I've, what I've experienced is that when you ask people, what would you do with a basic income? Is that about 99% of all people say, you know, I've got dreams, I've got ambitions. Uh, I'm not going to sit on the couch. I'm going to do something useful. But when you ask them, what will other people do? Then most people say, oh, you know, other people, they'll, they'll probably spend it on, on drugs and alcohol and sit on the couch and watch Netflix. Uh, so indeed, I think it's just important 
to resolve this discussion by looking at the evidence. Uh, we have the experiments in Canada and the US from the 1970s. We have other evidence from the 1990s as well. And what we see happening time and again is that most people want to make something of their lives. Um, so they don't work less at all. In, in the can Canadian experiment, the working hours for men only nudge down by 1% and for women about 3 to 5%. And this was all compensated by volunteers' work. Some kids worked uh, a little less, but the, they found them all in school. So um, they got more education. Um, I think we, nowadays we have a very pessimistic image of human nature uh, because we watch a lot of news <laughs> uh, and in the news things are always going wrong people are corrupt and there's crime and there's terrorism etc but uh, most people are actually pretty nice yeah yeah um so going on to actually you, you're talking about the working week um one thing you'd like to see implemented was is a, a 15-hour work week um, which probably is something that not many people would argue against. Um, that was something that um, John Maynard Keynes um, predicted actually we would achieve by by twenty thirty. Mm -hmm. Do you do you think that that will happen? Um, and and also how would how would a shorter working week provide that income that would be needed for for the basic income that you would you would like to see? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think we completely need to rethink what work actually is. So nowadays. Uh, in Britain, for example, we know from a recent poll that as much as 37% of all British workers think they have a job that doesn't need to exist. It's what the anthropologist David Graeber calls a bullshit job. Now, we could easily cut the work week by a third, you know, get rid of all these jobs uh, and and be just as wealthy as we are now. Um and don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about the teachers, the garbage men and the care workers here. These are, I'm more talking about like the consultants and the and the lawyers and, and uh, people working in the financial services who, and it's not me saying it, it's people themselves saying it, you know, um, my job isn't that useful. Uh, and I think that shows that that we really need to rethink what work actually is, that we are, that we are stuck with old definitions um, of what is important. And and that's what that's what people uh, and Keynes was one of them, but Isaac Asimov, one of the great science fiction writers as well, and, and many other great thinkers from the 1930s until the 1970s were dreaming about. Everyone believed until I think about 1980, all the experts thought that we would be working less and less and less, and that the working week would keep shrinking. But somehow it hasn't happened. Uh, they all thought that the great challenge of the future would be boredom. You know, what are we going to do with all that free time? The great challenge of the future would be how to live the good life, how to do something useful. <laughs> um, and what we see happening nowadays is that the funny thing is that Asimov, for example, he thought that psychologists uh, would have the biggest profession of the future because they would have to treat all the people who are bored. Uh, and what we see nowadays is that it is indeed one of the biggest professions, uh, but not because people are bored, <laughs> but because they're completely stressed out. So I, th I think that that shows us that a lot of things happen differently than than we thought it would, uh, and that it could have all been very different. And then moving on to to migration, I mean, we're sort of in a world where governments are, are across the world are, are moving to try and limit migration. Um, you know, you see see it all on the news every day. I mean, you advocate open borders. Um, how do you think this would help achieve utopia? And, and is this something that again that we can see in history? Mm -hmm. Um, well, you would be surprised that 
borders are, in fact, a quite recent invention. So in the 19th century, they mostly existed on papers, uh, on paper. So um, passports, there, there were a few countries like like the, the, the Ottomans and Russia who issued passports, but they were mostly considered for backwards countries. Um, this is what we call the first age of globalization at the end of the at the end of the 19th century, where, where it was actually quite easy to travel around. It was only after the First World War and especially after the Second World War that uh, borders became much m- more difficult to cross. And what I try to explain in my book is that there's a huge amount of evidence that migration is actually the most powerful instrument in the fight against global poverty. And that so many of the traditional arguments against it, such as the immigrants will take our jobs, or they'll be lazy, or they'll profit from our systems of social security, or they're all criminals, etc., etc. It's just not true if you look at the actual evidence. Um, So I thought that it would be important to write something about that in a book about utopian visions for the future. Although I do know that this is probably the most utopian idea in the book. How do you think that the concept of utopia has changed through history? Um, Well, for a long time, there was only one utopia. And this is what, uh, what historians and anthropologists call the body utopia. So as I said earlier in the interview, um, most of history, most people were sick, poor, hungry, stupid, dirty, and ugly. So <laughs> in the past, everything was worse. Uh, so it shouldn't be a surprise that when people dreamed of a better future, they mainly dreamed of, you know, a world without, uh, where, where you wouldn't be hungry, where you, everyone would have a roof above their head, etc. Um, there's a there's a tradition that or there was a tradition in the in the low countries where where this was called the land of cocaine where you know just uh the rice fell out of the skies and uh, the the roasted goose flew uh, right into into your mouth um uh and this was this was the dream the interesting thought experiment would, of course, be is what would happen if we would have a time machine go back to the middle ages kidnap some peasants and then show them around in modern day Britain or the Netherlands where I live. I think people would basically say, well, this is it. You know, you've achieved our utopia, this, the, 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 the bodily utopia, because nowadays, I mean, more people are suffering from obesity than from hunger. Um, we've, as I said, we've achieved a lot in the past two centuries. Um, and so now there's room for new utopians to, to go further than we've, already come. Mm. Do, you, do you think your ideas could extend beyond Western Europe? Well, definitely. I mean, the, the, the open borders utopia is mostly um, uh, a utopian vision for people who are not living in Western Europe and who are not living in what I call the modern day land of plenty. Uh, so definitely. And the universal basic income idea or giving free money to the poor is actually um, much more popular nowadays in the global south. We've seen a huge surge of cash transfer programs in the past 15 years from countries to India, Malawi, uh, Namibia had, has done a great experiment, uh, Mexico, Brazil. Um, there's a very different kind of wealth welfare state being developed in those countries. It's all about unconditional money for the poor. And they find time and time again that it works. It's much more efficient. Uh, people put the money to good use. Um, 
and it's uh, it's much much less humiliating than the systems of social security we have in countries like Britain and the Netherlands and the US. Um, Thomas More um, wrote the first formal utopia in the 16th century. How does that connect with your ideas? Well, I mean, he was he was the the one who coined the term. If you if you look at the word utopia, it's actually interesting. It's sort of a a word joke. It means both good place and nowhere. Um, and so, so many people have read uh, Thomas More's book and didn't see the humor in it. I think that's very important, actually. If you look, for example, at the uh, the the one who gives the main uh, character in the book the tour around the island of Utopia, his his name is Hithaveus, which means speaker of nonsense. I've always loved that. So. Um, you shouldn't take your utopian visions too seriously. You should take them very seriously and not so seriously at the same time. Uh, what we have seen in the 20th century is that there were many utopian thinkers who were obsessed with their blueprints and their five-year plans. And if if reality didn't turn out the way they wanted it to be, they'll, then they'll just force reality. I mean, that's what Leninism and Stalinism and Nazism was all about. Uh, and after that, we said, no more utopian thinking for us. Utopian thinking is simply too dangerous. But if you go back again to Thomas More, the original utopian thinker, you find a version of utopian thinking that's actually really powerful and um, has a lot more space for humor as well. If everything you seek for the world in your book sort of comes to fruition, um, do you think we'll finally have achieved um, utopia? <laughs> well, that's a, that's, a, that's a funny question. I sometimes get that remark from readers is that they say, yeah, but Rodger, what if we achieve all your utopias? Then what happens then? We'll be in trouble. <laughs> yeah. what, what then? Well, there's a great, great quote from Oscar Wilde. I put that at the beginning of the book as well, is that, you know, utopia is always the, the, the destination in the distance. So, And everywhere, every time we land at the island called Utopia, we look out again and we look for new destinations. Humanity is always moving forward. But the problem is today is that we don't know what our des destination is. We can only look backward. I mean, you see this happening with Brexit, with Trump. And that's, that's why I think it's really important to reinvent the art of utopian thinking once again. That was Rutger Bregman. Utopia for Realists and How We Can Get There is out now published by Bloomsbury. Meanwhile, the March issue of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. This month we have articles on Victorian poverty, the Roman Praetorian Guard, Elizabeth I's Irish nemesis and plenty more. You can get hold of our March issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United Kingdom, whereby you can get 13 issues for the price of just eight. For more details and to take advantage of this offer, please visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash HTP214. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, then why not vote for us at the British Podcast Awards, for which voting is currently taking place. You can cast your vote by heading to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote and by searching for History Extra. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. 
you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 50 years ago, one of the worst environmental disasters in British history took place when the Torrey Canyon oil tanker ran aground off the coast of Cornwall. As a young boy, Julian May witnessed the aftermath of the disaster. And now, half a century later... May is presenting a new documentary for BBC Radio 4, exploring the dramatic events of March 1967. I caught up with him a little while back to find out more. Could you just please tell us what was the Torrey Canyon and how did it come to be off the coast of Britain? The Torrey Canyon was a tanker built in 1959 in Virginia. It was pretty big to begin with. It had a capacity of 60,000 tons. But then in the 1960s, during the big oil boom, it was what they called jumboized in Japan. And this made the ship able to, well, it had a capacity that was almost twice as much, 120,000 tons. That's what it could carry. Uh, and the ship was 900 and 74.4 feet long. So I think for a while it was actually the largest ship in the world, but it was certainly one of the largest moving structures in, in the world. Too big to go through the Suez Canal. And so sometime in February of 1967, with a cargo of 100,000 uh, tonnes of crude oil, it left Kuwait, bound for Milford Haven, and it reached Gran Canaria on March the 14th, 1967, at which point the captain, whose name was Rujati, Captain Rujati, he was Italian, he received an instruction from the owners of the vessel that he had to get his ship to Milford Haven by 11 p.m. 
on the 18th of March. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to get into the harbour for another week almost because this ship was so huge. Its draft was, you know, more than 60 feet. Um, so he um, had to make uh, good progress to get there in time. Uh, and he, well, according to the reports, he set a course that would take him to the west of the Isles of Scilly on his way to Milford Haven at about noon on the 17th of March. And the ship was going along quite nicely and he went to bed with instructions to wake him up at six in the morning the next morning, which the crew did. And he was astonished, it's said, to find that the Scilly Isles were lying to the west and that the ship had been moved by strong currents to the north and to the east. Other people say, actually, that's not the case and he was taking a shortcut between Land's End and the Isles of Scilly. And that would have been all right. He could have done that, except that uh, those are very good fishing grounds and there was a, a local fishing fleet there and he was bearing down on them. And there were a few manoeuvres, but at one point he, he realised that they were among, among the rocks off the Isles of Scilly. He ordered, you know, a sharp swing to port but amazingly, the autopilot had somehow been left on. So the ship just carried on uh, and didn't respond. And you have to bear in mind the size of this thing. This is a ship that um, took five miles to stop. Uh, and it was going at 17 knots, which was about, it's nearly 20 miles an hour. And it slammed into a, a rock, Pollard's Rock, on the Seven Stones Reef off the Isles of Scilly, which they're notorious. Only, I think, one ship has um, ever hit that rock and um, been floated off. What happened was that several of the oil tanks in the tank of work were ripped open in this collision. They didn't realise how extensive the damage was at first. And crude oil started leaking into the sea. And then they also started pumping oil into the sea because they wanted to lighten the load of the vessel to raise it in the hope of salvaging it. And there were tugs in attendance. So that was the situation on uh, the morning of the 18th of March, 1967. Uh, the uh, St. Mary's lifeboat was um, called out, helicopters were called out. Uh, most of the crew were taken off, but some were left aboard. But this had, I mean, there had been oil spills before, but nothing of this magnitude. This was the first major oil spill, really, in the world, and certainly the worst to um, aff afflict Britain. And the authorities really weren't sure what to do, how to respond to this, because the situation of the ship is quite complicated because the ship, the Torrey Canyon, was owned by something called Barracuda Tankers, and that was a subsidiary of the uh, Union Oil Company of California. It was registered in Liberia, so it was sailing under a flag of convenience. It was chartered to BP who actually owned the oil, and the crew of 36 was Italian. So there's a lot of com 
complexity there. And the authorities weren't sure what to do because it was owned by an American company. It was in international waters. They couldn't just, uh, at that point, given the legal framework, do very much, really. The next day, on the 19th, because some of the oil had leaked away, inflammable vapours began to gather in some of the tanks. And there was a terrific explosion. And one man, a Captain Stahl, a Dutch, uh, a Dutch salvage expert, was actually uh, killed in that explosion. Now, we were living at that point in the time of the administration of Harold Wilson, and there was a lot of talk about the white heat of technology and the idea that really science could solve everything. And ironically, BP, who owned the oil, which had caused the pollution, quickly produced a chemical that was going to be used to uh, clean up the oil. Now, the problem was, you see, the oil... I mean, there was a slick that was eventually 270 square miles, an incredibly huge oil slick. And um, it was coming towards Cornwall. And in fact, it enveloped Cornwall. And it reached Brittany. It uh, destroyed the shellfish uh, fishery there for a while. And it got as far as Guernsey... And I was speaking to a friend of mine just yesterday who lives in Beadnell in Northumberland, and she said there was oil from the Torrey Canyon that had got as far as there. Now, the economy of Cornwall depended then, perhaps even more than it does now, I'm not sure, because this was in days really before uh, cheap flights to the Costa Brava, on the holiday industry. So the imperative was to get the holiday beaches clean. So BP came up with this substance, BP-1002, which was called detergent. But it was really an emulsifier, um, a solvent. It was very highly toxic. And they treated the oil as it came ashore and at sea with this solvent. There was thousands of volunteers. The army was brought in. People were uh, out and about trying to uh, clean up this terrible oil. But in fact, they think now that the detergent, the cleaner, caused more damage than the oil itself. Many, many birds were caught up in the oil because it was the beginning of the migration season. So all the birds that dive or sit on the water, things like puffins and cormorants and orcs, razorbills, gannets, all these birds suffered because they got oiled up and they couldn't fly. And they ingested the oil, which um, burned their inner organs as well. At least 20,000 seabirds died. You know, that was an extraordinarily moving sight, you know, these oiled up birds and people tried their best to clean them. There was a huge enthusiasm for picking up these birds and taking them to various cleaning stations, but very, very few of them survived, alas. After a few days, and I think partly because Harold Wilson himself had a holiday home on St Mary's in the Isles of Scilly, it was thought that something must be done and they brought in bombers to blow the ship up. That was the idea, to set fire to all the oil. And I I remember, because I was 11 at the time, and I was on a beach in North Cornwall, I'd seen the oil come in, and I'd seen these poor birds, and I saw the 
people vainly spraying this awful chemical around the place. And suddenly there was a strange noise and these buccaneer bombers flew very low and they were on their way to bomb the ship. And I could actually hear the bombs going off. They bombed it with thousand pounders. Later, they brought in um, kerosene and even napalm to try and set the oil on fire. So it was a very spectacular event. That's what happened. That's what the uh, Torrey Canyon disaster was. And more than 30 million gallons of crude oil leaked into the sea. So was anyone, was there ever official blame cast for this or did anyone ever offer compensation or was there any redress? I mean, there was an inquiry and the captain, Pastrengo Rujati, was blamed. I don't think it's entirely his fault. I mean, he'd been a, a sea captain since the early 50s and he'd been on this vessel for a, a year. I mean, he was at this point, very tired and, and, and rather ill. But it's one of those things where several smaller mishaps lead to a major mishap. Yes, the the government um, did go after the ship owners. Because I, 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 was, I wasn't quite sure where responsibility lay, you see. If, but apparently, the responsibility lies with the owners of the vessel, not the people who've chartered it. So they did go after them. And there's um, something in maritime law that uh, if something happens to one ship, you can arrest a sister ship. And apparently in Singapore, the sister ship of the Torrey Canyon was arrested by the British government by a young solicitor who got aboard because in the old days, you used to serve a writ on a ship by nailing it to the mast. He got aboard and served the writ and they thought that he was a whiskey salesman which is a rather wonderful, um, strange uh, story. So that happened. But the main thing that's really important about it, I think, is that after the Torrey Canyon disaster, things changed. It got such attention from the media that things couldn't go on after this. It actually changed people's minds about our relationship with the natural world, with the environment. Of course, seeing all these poor birds, you know, that had an impact on people. And, you know, the membership of the Royal Society for for the Protection of Birds, you know, increased exponentially. And I think it caused the government to change in their attitude to the environment. This happened in 1967. And in 1970, the Department of the Environment was created. And there was also change in the law. Prior to this, you know, um, at the point of the the Torrey Canyon going going aground, you know, no one quite knew what to do about that in law. Now, the situation is that um, the government can have control over these uh, these ships. It can prevent ships like that coming in. It can um, uh, take measures even to the destruction of a vessel if it wishes to. So, you can argue that the Torrey Canyon disaster saw really the beginning of the major environmental movement in Britain. Prior to this, there were lots of little organisations, but this really focused people's attention. And it also changed the shipping industry. The shipping industry then put measures into place to make sure that there were funds for compensation 
and there have been two or three protocols. And it's also changed the designs of ships. Now, now a ship like that would have to be double-hulled. Actually, I don't think that would have prevented this disaster. But if you think of it then, you know, it, the ship was like a sort of tin of sardines, really, except the, it, was, it was crude oil inside. Now they're far more robust. There is one incredible thing I'd like to just tell you about, though, though and that's that um, the oil reached the Channel Islands. Guernsey, in particular, was badly affected. Because of the nature of the Channel Islands, they still have uh, sewage tankers, you know, to empty people's septic tanks. They didn't know what to do, and they also had to have, uh, you know, they wanted their holiday beaches clean. And so they pumped about 3,000 tonnes of this oil into these tankers, and poured it all into a quarry, and it's still there to this day. And that's been quite important because people have been able to study the decay of oil nat naturally, and also they've developed something called bioremediation, which is introducing microbes that will eat the oil and produce water and carbon dioxide as a way of cleaning oil spills without recourse to very harmful chemicals. However, what's happened is some of the oil has sunk into the sediment at the bottom of the quarry. Every now and again, it's it comes to the surface if there's a you know a seismic disturbance, a change in water level or something like that. And it rather has overwhelmed the microbes. So it's not been entirely successful, but it has been quite successful. The strange thing is that at the end of the Second World War, of course, the Channel Islands were occupied by the Germans. Loads of unexploded ordnance was hanging around the islands. They gathered a lot of this up and chucked it into various quarries, including this quarry. So you have at the bottom of this quarry on the north coast of Guernsey, unknown amounts of unexploded ammunition. And on top of that, thousands of gallons of crude oil, which I would imagine is something like a bomb. That's an interesting side issue, I think. The programme I'm making, I really wanted to make because I you know, as a young boy, was there and saw this. And it had a profound effect on me, really, on my attitude to the natural world, to the big to big business, to uh, politicians. You know, it's. Uh, I think that uh, it has, in a way, shaped my life. I think one, one little point I would really like to stress was that the emphasis was on getting the beaches clean, or what appeared to be clean, at the expense of everything else. So, you know, they chucked all this very powerful chemical everywhere, and that didn't so much clean the beaches as sterilise them. It killed all marine life on those places. You know, the seaweed went, the limpets went, the winkles went. Few people noticed that as much as they noticed the suffering of the birds. But probably what happened to the marine ecosystem beneath, which was hidden, was more devastating, really. And it took a long time to come back, years and years. Now, it seems as if the, the marine ecosystem around, the, around Cornwall has recovered from this. But it was only last year that they discovered again St. Piran's hermit crab, which was a little hermit crab that's usually found much further south. But it had been discovered in Britain in the 50s, and then it disappeared after the Torrey Canyon disaster. And it was only last year that it was rediscovered.
though it probably had come back rather sooner. But uh, some people netting and, you know, turning over stones in a rock pool off in Castle Beach in Falmouth found this little hermit crab, which has distinctive red legs. And that was the one. And that's how they rediscovered it. That was Julian May. His archive on four documentary, entitled Torrey Canyon and the Toxic Tides, airs on BBC Radio 4 on Saturday the 18th of March at 8pm. And now it's time for the latest history news with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Archaeologists believe an eight-metre statue found in the northeast of Cairo is of Pharaoh Ramesses II. The fragments of the statue were found submerged in groundwater in a Cairo neighbourhood, close to the Temple of Ramesses II, who was also known as Ramesses the Great. The pharaoh was the third of the 19th dynasty of Egypt and ruled for 66 years, from 1279 BC to 1213 BC. The torso of the huge statue may be 3,000 years old and is made out of quartzite. Other finds extracted from the same site include the upper part of a life-sized limestone statue of Pharaoh Seti II, grandson of Ramesses II. The discovery has been hailed by Egypt's Antiquities Ministry as one of the most important ever. One leading Egyptologist told the BBC that if it proved to be original, rather than a later reworking to resemble Ramesses II, it would be a significant find. In other news... A team of archaeologists digging at Gloucester Cathedral has unearthed a strap that may have been used to support a medieval prosthetic leg. Experts working on the excavation told the BBC that traces of bone and wood found with the metal buckle and a fragment of the strap suggest the finds formed part of a support on which the individual's residual limb could rest. Helen Jeffrey from the cathedral said, We expected to find some burial sites and skeletons, as it used to be a lay cemetery, and these little pieces of iron were found in a grave with a skeleton. It was just a real puzzler, and we had it taken away to be analysed. The pieces were found during the Project Pilgrim scheme to redevelop parts of the cathedral, and they will be displayed at the cathedral in the future. Meanwhile, an oil painting by Adolf Hitler is set to go on display for the first time at a museum in northern Italy. The Museum of Salo, which is located on the shores of Lake Garda, will show the painting as part of an exhibition entitled The Museum of Madness, which also features work by British painter Francis Bacon and the 18th century Spanish master Francisco Goya. The small and titled oil painting, which is on loan from a private German collector, has never been exhibited before. Adolf Hitler twice applied to the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts in the 1900s and was twice rejected by the Academy. Exhibition curator Vittorio Scarbi told the BBC, quote, It's a painting by a hopeless man, adding, It says a lot about his psyche. Here you do not see greatness, you see misery. OK, well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be broadcasting a lecture from our recent M-Shed weekend. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. 
Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.